Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Barry Motives. Thanks for joining us. I am so excited to bring you this wild ride today. Melissa has told me nothing. I was trying to get some information out of her about it, and she has been tight-lipped. So I am anxious for her to tell us this case. This case has so many twists and turns, and they are all centered around one family and the stories they tell each other. Ooh, is this like a whole family of dirtbags? It is. It's going to be so interesting to hear your perspective on who the guilty and the innocent parties are. Really? I'm intrigued. Let me tell you about this family. In 2004, the Potter family moved to Tennessee from Pennsylvania. The father, Marvin, also known as Buddy, and his wife, Barbara, and their adult daughter, Janelle, settled in Mountain City in East Tennessee. At the time, it was a small rural town with a population of around 2,500. The population hadn't changed much in the 20 years before they moved there, and it still looks like it hasn't changed much today. It's just that kind of town. Hmm. People are born and raised there and typically live out their lives there among the picturesque, rolling landscape of trees. Being a newcomer in the town was not always easy, according to Janelle. She felt because she wasn't born there, she didn't fit in. But sometimes that's all about perspective. Ooh. I have no idea what you're about to tell, but I can see how sometimes people can be viewed as an outsider when it's such a tight-knit community. It's like trying to be the new person in a friend group. It's always a little awkward to begin with. But it's awkward for that person coming in and not necessarily awkward for the other people around them. Right. Like I said, it's all about perspective. According to the family's oldest child, Christy, who didn't accompany the family on the move, Janelle's experience in the town could have had more to do with her family than the townsfolk of the little town that boasts of its friendliness on its welcome sign. Christy Potter had left home at the first chance she got. Not that she was the wildly independent type, but because she recognized it was an unhealthy environment for her. Those Christies are always stand-up citizens. (laughs) I'm happy that Christy had some common sense and got out of Dodge. Well, she is one of the only people that has some common sense in this family. Because <laughs> her name is Christy. <laughs> There's something in your name, isn't there? I had to put that in there. Come on. <laughs> Christy's mom, Barbara May Potter, was born on July 26 in 1950. Before she had moved to Tennessee, she had worked at Hewitt Packard, but she gave up that position to care for her aging mother in Mountain City. She was a woman that always enjoyed some drama. She believed she... And as an extension, her family was the center of the universe, that everyone's actions had something to do with them. They all wanted to be like them, or they were all out to get them. Oh, I have a hard time with people like that. And many people did have a hard time with Barbara. She often had difficulty getting along with anyone for any length of time because she took offense so easily. And it's always shocking to me how people like that think that there's a problem with everybody else. But when you have a problem with everybody, maybe it's time to look inward. Maybe it's not everybody. Maybe it has more to do with you than everyone around you. Barbara did not have that sense at all. 
She was estranged from most of her extended family because of her behaviors. Everyone offended her. Right. When meeting new people, at first Barbara would gush about the person being the nicest, the kindest soul she had ever met. But when they didn't 100% agree with her about even the smallest matter, they became public enemy number one. Really? And not only did they have to be sworn off, but they also had to be protected against. Barbara was constantly perceiving threats and insults from other people. She sounds like a handful. According to Christy, she was. Christy's father, Marvin Enoch Potter, was born on September 29, 1951, and went by Buddy. He mostly lived off in a world of his own, reliving his glory days. At 18, he had joined the Marines and served in Vietnam. Christy grew up hearing stories of her father's valor, surrounded by war memorabilia. Her parents would often talk about her father's heroics that had earned him numerous medals, and how he had operated under the CIA during the war. Oh. Of course, her mother would always talk in the hushed tones of secrecy because Buddy couldn't talk too much about his top secret missions, not even to her. It probably made her feel even that much more important and special. That's right. She loved having this little up on everybody else. Oh, we know this information, but we can't share it with you. It's top secret. Right. She believed that the work he had done and his silence were all too important to national security. Oh my goodness. But we'll come back to that. When Buddy returned from Vietnam, he suffered a terrible accident while working at a construction site just after Christy was born. He fell 70 feet and was permanently disabled. Buddy was cut down in the prime of his life. He would eventually learn to walk again, but from that time on, he had difficulty with movement and chronic pain. The trauma sustained to his lungs would eventually contribute to him needing to be on oxygen most of the time by the time they moved to Mountain City. Whoa, that was a vicious fall. Mm-hmm. Confined to his home, though, because of his health, he survived by becoming obsessed with the military and was an avid gun collector. He proudly wore his U.S. Marines hat, displayed his medals, and was seldom seen without a gun on his person. Sometimes carrying extra ammunition slung over his oxygen tank. Whoa. He spent his days living in the past, embellishing on all the things that he had done when he was in the military. So it seems that Buddy and Barbara made the perfect couple. Barbara was always game for a little drama. In her mind, her supposed slights were always something to get worked up about. She would take a slight and escalate it into a real threat in her mind that she then needed protection from. And I didn't find any official reports of Barbara being diagnosed with paranoia, but it certainly seems like she could have been. With all of these threats against her, thankfully she had Buddy by her side to defend her against her enemies. In Barbara's eyes, Buddy was her ace in the pocket, her own personal bodyguard that would defend her if she ever needed it. She worshipped him, and Buddy was always happy to go along with her story because it seemed like it completely stroked his ego. Ooh. It seems like both of them were feeding off of each other and made quite the pairing. They were like the perfect couple for each other. I think there was the potential there for him to feel less masculine because of his accident and his inability to work and provide for his family. And so Barbara's drama and all of these threats that she needed to be protected against kind of led into him feeling important again and having a job and a place. Right. And she absolutely fed into his ego as well. 
talking about how important he is and how top secret and how he's basically in control of our whole country's safety. Exactly. And his view of the world also led him to just blindly accept whatever Barbara was telling him about other people. So they're basically in their own little delusional bubble. Exactly. Oh, man. It sounds like since his time in the service, he had a pretty negative view about people in general and what they were capable of doing to each other. He was always quick to believe the worst about people. War is a brutal thing to witness, and Buddy was diagnosed with PTSD. Mm. So maybe that had something to do with his outlook on life. But it definitely wasn't helped by Barbara's outlook on life either. Yeah, they're a recipe for disaster. They're just feeding into each other in all the wrong ways. Mm -hmm. According to many people who knew the couple, it was clear, though, that Barbara was the one who actually wore the pants in the family. But she was smart enough to let Buddy believe that he did. (laughs) How many marriages is that the case? (laughs) The two together created a world of fear where everyone was out to get them. And there was always someone lurking in the shadows. As parents, they were overly protective, especially of their youngest daughter. And their protectiveness makes sense if you view the world from their perspective. Right. But their perspective is not always reality. Exactly. So let me tell you a little bit about their second daughter. Janelle Lee Potter was born on April 27th in 1981, six years after her sister Christy. From the time that she was little, Janelle was always considered to be special and required extra attention. At an early age, she was diagnosed with an auditory processing disability that made it difficult for her to process information that she heard. And the way it was described was, you said, go and get your shoes, and she would hear a completely different instruction, like go outside and water the flowers. Along with that disability, she was also diagnosed with several learning disabilities. School testing showed she had an IQ of 72, which did qualify her as below average intelligence by three points. Janelle did complete high school through special education classes. And as an adult, she was set to function at about a grade four level. Okay. As a young child, Janelle was also diagnosed with insulin-dependent diabetes and struggled her whole life to control the illness. She frequently suffered from DKA, or diabetic ketoacidosis, a very serious condition that can result in coma and death. This poor kid. It sounds like she had it a little rough. That's a lot. It is a lot to deal with. Janelle was routinely hospitalized to stabilize her fluid and insulin because it was so poorly controlled. And it sounds like she struggled throughout even her adult life to manage her sugars. Oh. Because of her difficulties and her parents' personalities, Janelle was coddled to the extreme. Oh, I can totally see that because Barbara is always, oh, we're such a victim. So it'd be, oh, woe is me, my poor baby. Exactly. Christy said her sister struggled to fit in typical social situations, and it was only made worse by her parents never holding Janelle accountable. That's never good. No. But this I have to take with a grain of salt. I know lots of siblings that feel like their younger sibling gets all of the attention and gets away with murder, unable to do anything wrong in their parents' eyes. When listening to Christie's reports about her younger sister, it's hard not to get this vibe. Okay. There are always two sides to a story and different ways to view the truth of any situation. Janelle's troubles as a youth could be viewed as outright bullying by other children. That is how Janelle's parents viewed the situation. 
Janelle would have several altercations with other students that would need intervention throughout her life. In each of the situations, Buddy and Barbara would be outraged that anyone would dare accuse their perfect little angel of any wrongdoing, and would always place the blame on somebody else. Christy saw each of these altercations as being provoked by Janelle, and then felt she played the innocent victim. This is always so bad in the true crime community. This is never good. No, you can see that it's already leading down a rocky road. Yeah, it can create lousy people in general, but extra dirty dirt bags as well. Mm-hmm. And these altercations that Janelle was having at school, they weren't little squabbles. There are two different incidents that I found in psychological reports and in court documents for Janelle having significant struggles with other students in school, and in both accounts, she was the victim. Both instances seem very similar, so I'm not sure if the times got skewed over the years or if they are actually two different occurrences. There are distinct times given for each of the attacks, one in middle school and one in high school, but each of the recounts given are very similar, so it makes me suspicious if there had been just some error in reporting the facts. It is possible that the facts became muddled over time because both of the accounts were given after the fact. Okay, so not immediately after the incident. Right. Okay, gotcha. So in middle school in Kennett, Pennsylvania, a student had attacked Janelle, supposedly just kind of out of the blue. The case went to court and Barbara blamed the whole thing on the other students, saying that Janelle was just too pretty and that that had been the reason for the attack. Oh, <laughs> Oh, we all know a mom like this. Yes. Get out. (laughs) She's too beautiful. That's why the other girl did this to her. She just couldn't stand it. Her jealousy just got the better of her. Right. But it sounds like from her sister that Janelle started the fight and then just couldn't end it. Well, and when you've never been held accountable for anything your whole entire life, you have no problem starting things because you know you're going to be portrayed as the innocent one. Right. This happened again in high school. Janelle was attacked again by a student because, according to Barbara, Janelle was just too pretty. And how does Barbara have any right to say how it started? She wasn't there. She doesn't know these kids. Oh, well, she just takes Janelle's word. Wow. She's probably giving Janelle the words to even say. That could be possible. This time, Janelle suffered a brain injury, which further complicated her intellectual disabilities and would result in a permanent disability claim because Janelle was determined not to be able to work or drive. Okay. So it was a pretty significant attack. Yeah. But Christy felt different about these situations despite their outcomes. She said there were many times growing up when she felt that Janelle used her learning disabilities and illness to her advantage, purposely playing up her symptoms to receive attention and sympathy. She cited several times that Janelle would turn on her sweet, high-pitched voice on her parents to beg them to do something for her that she was perfectly capable of doing by herself, only to laugh at them afterwards. Christy felt her sister was more capable than her parents or even Janelle let on. Under her sickeningly sweet demeanor, she felt that Janelle was actually mean and very temperamental. Barbara and Buddy reinforced Janelle's behavior by constantly telling her that she was too fragile to do things like other kids her age, and created a wall between her and the outside world. This created an environment where the three of them existed in a very bizarre codependency. Yeah, it sounds like it. Almost a shared delusion. Yeah. 
At the age of 23, when she moved to Mountain City, Janelle was a six-foot grown woman who continued to have interests more typical of a child. Her room was covered with stuffed animals, and she continued to use a childish voice. Her parents reinforced this by treating her like a child, monitoring everything she did and maintaining strict curfews on her time. Not that it mattered much, though, because the majority of Janelle's life was lived from inside of her parents' home on their shared family computer. Most of her interactions with the world beyond her front step came from online social media. It seems that Facebook and MySpace provided the only world where Janelle could be an actual adult. Try not to judge, but it's so cringy. It does seem a little cringy. That she's talking like a baby and acting like a little kid and her parents are accommodating that or supporting that, even instigating that. Right. Most of us as moms, we're trying to help prepare our children for adulthood to be able to stand on their own two feet. We're excited for them to hit that next stage of their life. Yeah. All of this did not point to a very healthy environment in the Potter household. But remember, a lot of this information comes from Christy, and she makes no effort to hide the fact that she is estranged from her family. (laughs) But can you blame her? No. She said at one point that she did try to have a relationship with them again after her divorce. She too moved to Mountain City for a short time after the rest of her family moved there. She had come to care for her grandmother when her mother wasn't able to fulfill all of her care duties. She was recently laid off, so starting over in a new city was appealing to her. She had always had a difficult relationship with her family, but thought that surely now that they were all adults, their differences could be set aside. But after a little over a year of being in the same town as her parents, she was ready to get out of Dodge. Prior to leaving the town, she filled out an order of protection against her family. No way. There had been an altercation at the grandmother's house between her and her family. Barbara aggressively went after her own daughter, thinking that she was a threat. What? When confronted in court, Barbara played the victim and told the judge that it had been Christy who was the aggressor and had hit her and even embellished the story, saying that Christy had come at her with a knife. (gasps) And was it because Barbara was just too pretty? (laughs) That would have been poetic, but no. (laughs) It was because Barbara was always the victim. Oh my goodness. I just don't know how you could even have a healthy relationship with any of these people in the family. No. And I think that's the conclusion that Christy came to. So have you got a good picture of the Potter family moving into Mountain City? Yeah. I wouldn't want them moving into my city. (laughs) Well, from a distance, they're this sweet, patriotic, albeit a little odd family that has been dealt a rough hand in the game of life right? They have this daughter that has all these disabilities. They have a husband or a a father that can't work and can't provide for the family. And then they have this mother that struggles with making friends. Yeah, you would almost feel sorry for them and want to help the family, right? That's the view from the outside. On the inside, though, the roots of dysfunction grow very deep. That the family was a little different was noticed by other residents of the town. In 2009, though, Tracy Greenwell, a pharmacy clerk where Janelle filled her prescriptions, took pity on the young adult that she knew had very little social life for a girl her age. While the sleepy town didn't have the raging club scene that a big city did, the locals did have an active social life, and Tracy welcomed Janelle to join them. After Tracy got the stamp of approval from Barbara and Buddy, they actually insisted that Tracy come to their house a couple of times to be vetted prior to Janelle going out with her. 
the 27-year-old was given permission to go out with Tracy and her friends. She's 27 now? Mm -hmm. And her friends have to be pretty much interviewed. Right. And then she has to ask permission to go out. At 27? Yes. That is the kind of control that's going on in this family. Whoa. It's almost sad. It really is. For the first time in her life, Janelle had a social life. She was going to cookouts, rock climbing, and generally enjoying life as a young adult, meeting new people. One of the people that she met was Tracy's brother, Billy Payne. Billy was born on July 10th, 1975. He was the life of the party type guy. He was kind and friendly and always trying to make everyone feel included. A lot of reports and people claim that Janelle developed a crush on Billy, but he didn't return her affections. It is believable that she would be charmed by him. He was a strapping outdoors type that was always having fun partying. His sister Tracy, though, denies this view. She said Janelle was happy that she and Billy set her up with their cousin, Jamie. Janelle liked hanging out with her new friends, but wasn't always appreciative of the times when she wasn't the center of attention. And this seemed to happen whenever they were drinking and doing drugs. Now, this could have been just because she felt uncomfortable in that environment. Drinking and drugs aren't everyone's idea of a good time. But it seemed Janelle's issue with the drinking and the drugs had more to do with her losing the limelight with her friends as they partook. During one party, she was quite put out when she retreated to the car to pout and no one followed her or checked on her. She then went home and passive-aggressively blamed her hurt feelings on her friends partying to her parents, saying things like she was just too innocent for their behavior as she set the scene of an absolute rager. To Buddy, Janelle said that there were guns everywhere, and while she didn't know what kind specifically, she described them in such detail that Buddy was certain that there were AK-47s in the house. Oh my goodness. That's not a little gun. I've shot one of those. (laughs) That's a big gun. Yeah, that's not something you just have laying around. Yeah. And Janelle's a child that's grown up with guns her whole life. I am sure she knew the names of guns, but she's trying to play it off like, oh, I don't even know what kinds they were, but they looked like X, Y, and Z. Wow. So she totally is aware of what she's doing. I think Christie's reports are right. Yeah. Janelle told her parents about how her friends had let her sit out in the car, in the cold, all alone. Buddy and Barbara didn't need much convincing that these people were not good people and capable of some really mean behavior towards their precious daughter. Even though Janelle was not feeling the love from everyone in her new friend group, she was still interested in Jamie, though, Tracy's cousin. He wasn't as big of a partier as Billy. He was older, into computers like Janelle, and was a little awkward. And this is the guy that they were trying to set her up with. Right. It's the guy they did set her up with. Okay. Jamie Lynn Curd was born on March 12, 1973. Jamie had come from a family that struggled to make ends meet and experienced a lot of difficulties in school. He was teased for his stutter and had an eye condition that required him to wear dark glasses even when indoors. While not officially diagnosed with any learning disabilities as a child, many believe that he wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed, and even a little gullible. When Jamie dropped out of school, he took a job at Parkdale Mills, a textile factory in the town. Now in his mid-30s, he had lived in the same area his whole life, and he continued to work at the same job with his cousin Billy. Jamie was the quiet type that no one really noticed hanging out in the background. He just always went along with the crowd. 
He was Billy's quieter, older, less attractive sidekick. He seemed like the perfect match for Janelle, according to Tracy. Okay. It was Janelle that sought out Jamie's number after being introduced to him, and it was her that struck up a conversation with the shy man. She would call him in 30 to 45 second intervals so that her parents would not become wise to the fact that she was interested in a boy. What? I know. It's hard to imagine, but yes, that's what she would do. <laughs> what? She would like dial him up. I can only talk for 30 seconds. How are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. Okay, bye. I'll call you back. And then call him back for another 30 seconds? Yes. Wouldn't that be more suspicious? Like you've made 59 <laughs> phone calls to this boy in one evening? Well, you have to remind yourself that she's not functioning at top capabilities. But she's 27 years old. She's 27. And she feels the need to hide having a boyfriend from her parents. Or not even a boyfriend at this point. He's just a friend. Yeah. She's just interested in him. Well, he hasn't been vetted by mommy and daddy yet. No. And that takes quite some time. Because Barbara and Buddy were not enthusiastic for Janelle to have any adult relationships. They believed it was beyond her capabilities. And with a grade four understanding of the world, maybe they do have a point of getting involved with an older man. But is she functioning at grade four or was that just her education level grade four? Exactly. That's what I think the big difference is in this case. But for Buddy and Barbara, instead of fostering Janelle to do what she was capable of doing, they just shut her off completely. And I think a lot of that had to do with their own identity they fashioned coming from caring for Janelle and being the parents of this grown daughter that needed to be protected. I know it's not the same, but it's almost giving me Gypsy Rose vibes. It's totally Gypsy Rose vibes. Yeah, just wanting to keep her incapacitated, dependent on them, sheltered from the rest of the world. Right, because it then creates an identity for yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're the poor parents, you know, and especially Barbara. She's this poor woman who has a husband that was so injured he couldn't work and a daughter who is only at a grade four education and has all these medical problems and issues. Right. And so she's just left to care for everything. And oh, woe is me. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, no. Janelle orchestrated a story for her parents that would give her an excuse to see Jamie. Jamie was pretty good with computers. And pretty soon, the Potter's family computer was frequently having issues. <laughs> it is almost comical how she creates a relationship with Jamie under her parents' watchful eye. You can't blame a girl, <laughs> you know, when you find a boy that's cute. If I was in love with a plumber, <laughs> I might accidentally clog my sink a bunch of times. <laughs> the Potters had only one family computer that Janelle and Barbara shared. Buddy wasn't that interested in having a lot to do with computers and had no skills whatsoever. But over the course of the next few months, Jamie performed a disc cleanup on their computer, reformatted it, and pretty much anything else he could find, an excuse to come over and tinker with the computer. Whoops, it was unplugged. Yeah. <laughs> because while he worked on the computer, Janelle would sit and talk with him in the computer room. When her parents were out of the room, the two would steal secret glances and even a few kisses. Ooh, la la. Mm -hmm. Barbara and Buddy became wise to the, quote, friendship when Barbara found a prepaid cell phone that Jamie had purchased for Janelle so that they could talk longer in secret. Ooh. He hid it in the bushes, told her it was there, and then she found it and they were talking back and forth on it. Okay, this is like really adorable. It is such a cute relationship, right? Yeah. 
Like, he seems like a decent enough guy. Hold on to that thought. Oh, great. <laughs> I keep forgetting we're talking about murder. I'm just so involved. Barbara, when she found the phone, was outraged and texted Jamie all about it. But that didn't stop the relationship between Jamie and Janelle. Jamie once again hid a second phone in the front bushes for Janelle to find. The two talked at very unusual hours and were never able to actually go out on dates. The only time they got to spend together was when the computer needed to be fixed. (laughs) But after Barbara found out about them talking and having this relationship, did she let him come back to continue to fix the computer? Yeah, because the computers broke and they needed someone to fix it. Okay. But she had a stern talking to Jamie about it. Oh, this blows my mind. It is very bizarre. How many people do you think live like this? I don't know. I bet you it's more than we think. Really? I think so. Listeners, if you have a 27-year-old daughter, let her talk to a boy. Let her talk to a man, I should say. (laughs) It is okay. Yeah. (laughs) Well, after secretly speaking for five or six months, Jamie and Janelle began to talk about eloping together in the future. On Jamie's birthday in 2010, according to Janelle, he was supposed to meet up with her, but instead he got wasted at a party that Billy had thrown for him. Janelle spent the night waiting outside for Jamie to pick her up, but he never came. She was found in the ditch outside her parents' home by her parents the next morning. She was just curled up sleeping in the ditch. Still waiting. Still waiting. And her sugars were extremely low. Oh, that is dangerous. Mm -hmm. Irate, Buddy called Jamie at 8.30 the next morning. He tore one into Jamie, goaded on by Barbara in the background and demanded that Jamie never contact his daughter again, and even made Janelle get on the phone and break things off, saying that she didn't love him. Ooh. Jamie, hungover and completely shocked by this whole situation, sadly agreed to the demands of the Potters. So he exits the scene. Well, not really, because three days later, Janelle was begging Jamie to come back. It had all just been a misunderstanding, she said. And part of me wonders if the two had ever made plans to meet up that night. It is possible that he got completely drunk and forgot about their plans that Janelle claims they made, but it doesn't seem to fit with Jamie's behavior up until this point. He was completely infatuated with her. He loved having a girlfriend and receiving the attention for the first time in his life. He had willingly jumped through so many hoops already to be with her. If they were actually planning to elope, I doubt that he's going to forget about it and just go and get drunk. Yeah, it seems out of character for him. It does. I wonder if it was another situation like the one in the car and the party with her friends. She was upset that Jamie was hanging out with his other friends and she was not his main focus. So she did something dramatic. Like a preschooler pulling a tantrum, she ran away from home to the front ditch to teach him a lesson about putting his focus back on her. Yeah, that's pretty toxic. It's so toxic but I can completely see her doing it. Oh, for sure. And that's why I think he was so surprised the next morning when Buddy's screaming at him. He's like, what? Uh, We were supposed to meet? What? Yeah. It was around this time that Janelle was starting to pull away from all of the other friends that she had made in Mountain City. I wonder if she was feeling jealous of Jamie's relationship with other people, especially his cousin Billy. And so it seemed to be she had needs every time that Jamie was spending time with his other friends. Which is so selfish. Mm -hmm. The falling out with her friends seemed to come at the same time that Billy, too, started seriously dating a woman, Billie Jean Hayworth, 
Billy and Billy Jean. Yes. Billy oh. is now dating Billy. I love that. And Billy Jean was so adorable. She was born on March 19th in Tennessee. She was a country girl and enjoyed outdoor activities such as fishing, hunting, camping, and hiking. She also enjoyed playing sports, particularly volleyball in her youth. And in her adult life, she enjoyed flea markets, yard sales, and auctions. She was down-to-earth and super friendly, and many felt that she was just what Wild Billy needed. She was 13 years younger than Billy, but it didn't really seem to bother anyone because it seemed like their maturity levels matched. Well, and they're both adults, right? Mm-hmm. So that's different than when we're talking about a teenager and someone 13 years older than them. Yeah. It wasn't long after meeting Billy Jean that Billy started to tame his wild ways. He too found enjoyment in going to flea markets and auctions because he was an avid coin collector and the two seemed to go hand in hand. Aw, I love a good flea market. So much fun. Billy and Billy Jean moved into Billy's father's house around the same time they announced that they were expecting. They got engaged and things were really looking positive for these two. Billy even started to take part in a drug rehabilitation program to better himself for his new family. They both sound adorable. Yeah, and it sounds like they're moving fast, but they're moving in the right direction. Yeah, and that's really admirable of him to take that responsibility that, okay, I maybe need some help cleaning my act up. And it's showing his intentions that he wants to be a good dad and good partner for Billie Jean. Right. He's definitely going to try at least. Life was going well for them until anonymous comments started appearing on Janelle's Facebook page and a website called Topics, a former American online discussion board that allowed discussion topics to be narrowed down into forums. Mountain City had its own discussion page. It was supposed to be used for residents' announcements and upcoming events and friendly banter to create a sense of community. The comments about Janelle originally appeared on her Facebook page, but soon found their way to the more public forum of topics. The comments that were appearing weren't nice ones, and they seemed relentless. Once again, Janelle was being bullied just as she had been in school, and this brought back a lot of emotions for the Potter family. This is sounding a little suspicious. Is she actually being bullied or is she posting these herself to become more of a victim? You have hit the nail on the head. Oh, for this case, Christy, you're just going to have to live in some of the delusion with me so we can understand the motives for this murder. Okay. (laughs) I'll get lost in the drama. Yeah, get lost in the drama. Don't question too much about the reality of what can actually happen. Okay, I'll get lost in it as long as you promise to pull me back out. (laughs) I promise. I'll explain everything after the end. Okay, I'm in it like a dirty shirt. (laughs) What started on social media platforms as a passive-aggressive kind of backhanded comment soon became a battleground of rude and demeaning statements between those attacking Janelle and the people that stuck up for her. The whole situation was taken to a whole different level. Matt Potter, who was listed on Janelle's Facebook as her brother, wrote the first comment that took the feud to topics. He wrote about how Billie Jean and her two friends were harassing Janelle, calling them no-good whores. (gasps) And accuse the woman of selling drugs. What? Does mm-hmm. she even have a brother? She doesn't. She had listed this friend as like, he's such a good friend to me. He's like my brother. That's terrible. It is really awful. Others responded to Matt's comments, though, lending support for Janelle. Kelly posted that she knew the mean girls to be HIV positive, And she also lended support to Janelle. She is dragging their names through the mud. Mm-hmm. On April 21st, Dan White posted... Wow, Matt and Kelly, I knew she was bad, 
but I had no clue she was off the deep end. She is crazy, that's for sure. Sounds like all of them are. I know Billie Jean has lived with more guys and have sex with 80% of Mountain City. And Lindsay, I would say half of Mountain City. She has been all over, and she does have HIV. This is all around town. And Tara, she will give it to anyone. Her poor husband, he's a nice guy, but he never wants to be home with her. I think when his baby is 18, he will leave her. She is a whore too. I agree with you both. And this girl Janelle, I do know as in passing, but she is a good girl and was brought up right. You can tell. Everything is your welcome and hello and thank you. And she is just a sweet girl. I'll be praying for Janelle. As far as the other ones go, they're no good whore sluts. Whoa, that person needs to take a step back. That is horrible things to say about anybody. It always shocks me how much braver people become when they don't actually have to face the person. It's so much easier to type something online. And a lot of the times people will type things that they would never, ever say in real life. Totally true. They're so brave behind a computer screen. Mm -hmm. It's disgusting. And this went on for a long, long time. Matt posted back the next day after several other comments were made, making sure to include Billy in the feud. He wrote, quote, well, I guess Billy don't know I have his number and his phone is being tapped. Huh. I know what he said about Janelle and it's wrong. He's at work when these girls are doing this to Janelle. We got our stuff and Janelle, I'm sure, has stuff too. I'm going to be posting numbers if they don't stop bugging Janelle. And then all kinds of people will be calling them. I have cells to home phone numbers. And Billie Jean is getting so fat with that baby, she looks like a chipmunk that eats too many nuts, lol. I hope she loses that baby in time. It don't need a mother like Billie Jean. And Billy, he's no father by the way he acts and talks sooner they move out of town, the better. I hope they have to live in the woods. More better for the chipmunk. She can't make friends out there. Melissa. Oh my gosh. That's what they're saying about these girls that really have done nothing. I hope she loses her baby. Mm -hmm. Honestly, the ground needs to open up and swallow those little dirtbags inside. But that's what happens on online forums is that everybody just starts nipping at each other, right? That's terrible. It is. And this is a small town and it's on the town website. Oh, man. People must have been popping their popcorn just like watching this unfold. Uh Uh-huh. All the while, Janelle played the innocent victim being attacked. In September 2010, she responded to a friend Tara's apology for ghosting Janelle over all this drama. But Tara's name had been drugged through the mud. Yep. Tara was one of the ones that was mentioned. But she apologized to Janelle saying that, you know, sorry, I haven't talked to you. And Janelle wrote this back, quote, Hey, sweetie, it's really okay. I understand. I hope you're all doing well. I thank you for taking the time to write me. I hope you get it all worked out and everything. I'm not sad or mad or anything at you, honey. I can understand. It's okay. I'm doing okay. My health is not well and things I'm trying to fix and let people go and just leave me alone. But I think that it's just too much to ask for. And she actually wrote laugh out loud instead of LOL. If they don't stop talking and put me down, I'm going to end up saying what I'm really thinking and how mad I really am and see how they like it. I have not done anything to anyone and I stay to myself and talk to friends, but they go overboard and they are just mean girls, really. I hate they talk about me and I hate they act like they do. Anything to anyone to get away with it. It's sad. Well, anyways, I hope you are doing well. 
I'm praying and thinking of you all. Take care and God bless, Janelle. Whoa, what a manipulator. Yeah, it's hard to see her in any other light after writing a letter like that. Yeah, and by her creating all these other quote-unquote people to write all these terrible things, she's able to come across like, oh, I'm taking the high road because she's not saying it directly about them. She's getting all these fake people to say these things about them. And then she can be like, oh, it's okay, honey. I'm going to take the higher road. That's right. She starts off one comment and then everybody else just kind of jumps in and she gets to sit back and watch it all unfold. By November 2010, Janelle had officially identified Billie Jean and two of her friends, Lindsay Thomas and Tara Osborne, as her online attackers who were spreading rumors about her. And so she's throwing Tara under the bus after she's just told Tara, we're all good. Mm -hmm. I'm praying for you. That's right. Oh, All of the girls had at one time been friends of Janelle's, either in person or online. But now it was definitely friends off as everyone unfriended everyone else and the mud was slung between them. Yeah. And what's so ironic with this is that Barbara has always said that the girls were picking on Janelle because they were so jealous of her. But Janelle is doing that exact thing. She's picking on Billie Jean because she's jealous of her. It seems that way. Tracy, the one that had originally invited Janelle into the group of friends, got involved and left Janelle a Facebook message clearly stating her displeasure with the whole situation. It read, quote, Your friend Matt needs to leave Billie Jean and Lindsay off the topics website. You lost my brother as a friend, and I'm not happy with you either. Janelle again played the innocent victim and responded to Tracy, claiming that she did not know who Matt Potter was and that she had done nothing wrong and that there had been a lot of trash talking about her in town from the both of them. In a further response, Janelle told Tracy, quote, They need to back off. I don't talk about them and don't know them. Why don't you tell them to get away from me and tell them not to pull into my driveway? Dad is getting real sick of it. He has gone with me to the cops, and I showed them and gave them names, and they looked everything up, and they also know that I'm not doing a thing. So this is not my fault. If you hate me, then I don't care. Whoa. Lines were clearly being drawn in the sand in this small town. And Janelle actively recruited to her side. Janelle told her parents that after making fun of her at the grocery store for using a food stamp card, that the mean girls had made up three Facebook accounts using her picture. She claimed that they had hacked into her accounts and harassed her saying, quote, we want you dead. Janelle claimed to her parents that the mean girls had said they would hurt her and her family with graphic descriptions of how they would rape her and cut her head off. What? Mm-hmm. Janelle would print off these threats and show her father because he didn't use the computer at all. One of the threats he was shown was one against Janelle and Barbara. He said, quote, they had threatened to cut off Janelle's head and Lindsay had posted online that she had a $3,000 bounty on his Barbara's and Janelle's heads. After seeing the threats and discussing them with his daughter, he looked into things himself. He said he found things out and that he heard people talking in town about kidnapping Janelle from a bathroom, taking her to a field, and raping her because she was a virgin and then murdering her. What? Mm-hmm. The dad is saying he heard people say this? Yeah. Yeah. He heard people talking in town about this. Barbara added fuel to the fire by contacting the mean girls on Facebook after they had unfriended Janelle and told them about what they were doing to Janelle's health and that they needed to stop. Okay. 
But the parents actually believe that this is going on? It would seem that way. Yeah. I'm just confused by the dad saying that he heard that. He believes that he heard people talking in town and this is what they were saying about his daughter. Barbara felt she had a firsthand knowledge of the whole situation because she still supervised her grown daughter's media accounts for her own protection. Of course she did. So she's watching all of these messages come into Janelle's account and seeing how mean they are and all of these comments that are being made about her daughter. And so she gets on Facebook and is like, you can't say this about my daughter. Oh, she'd be right in there because she loves being the victim. Right. And the only thing better than her being the victim is her poor daughter being the victim. Mm -hmm. Barbara really was a paranoid individual that felt people were out to get her family. And so all of these comments coming in are just cementing that for her. As time passes, it was more than just mud that was being flung, though. As physical threats were expressed online, real-life interactions became tumultuous. Police reports started to be made from both sides. Oh, A lot of stuff starts happening now that all overlaps. I'll do my best to kind of keep the flow steady for you and logical, but know that some of these occurrences are happening simultaneously. Okay. Janelle said that Buddy caught them, referring to Janelle's attackers, trying to put sugar in the potter's gas tanks, and that they scratched his truck all up, broke their garage door, and threw rocks at the house at Janelle's window. Police came to investigate and found river rocks on the front lawn, painted with the names Billy Payne, Billy Jean, and the words, I am your huckleberry, on them. Who's going to throw a rock that you've put your name on? That's what they claimed. These rocks were thrown at their house. And I guess maybe they just wanted to claim the action. So that they would know who their attacker was. Yes. And what's with the huckleberry? Well, apparently, I am your huckleberry is slang for I am your man. Which again, I I still don't understand. We should try it out with our husbands. It's just so bizarre. Buddy marches down to the police station to file his own police report, telling them about all the harassment and abuse his daughter is having to endure. Her friends have even unfriended her on Facebook, he told the police officers. Oh, no. And they threw rocks at the house and we know it was them because their names were on the rocks. Buddy even tried to throw his weight around at the police station, telling them that he was awaiting his CIA ID that would reinstate him back into active duty. So you better pay attention. (laughs) Can you imagine that police officer taking that report? You're saying that they unfriended your daughter from Facebook and that's a crime? Uh Uh-huh. And this man with the oxygen tank is going to be CIA. Delusional. Uh Uh-huh. I can just see them rolling their eyes. Yeah, can you imagine the conversation after he left that would have happened at the precinct? I doubt any of them took it seriously at all. No. Again, this is just a feud on social media. Those on the other side of the feud, though, were also putting in their own complaints of harassment. Lindsay went to the police with a complaint that she was receiving 15 to 20 phone calls a day in which nobody spoke, but she could hear breathing on the other end of the line. This is just so immature. It is. As far as cyberbullying goes, that is serious. Police do need to take that very, very seriously. But they unfriended my daughter on Facebook? Like, that's just bizarre. Well, what's even more hilarious about these phone calls is that Lindsay knew exactly who they were from because the potter's phone number was coming up on her caller ID. (laughs) So even though Janelle denied that it was her, they knew exactly where the phone calls were coming from. They didn't know about, what was it, star six nine? No. One time Buddy got on the line when he caught Janelle on the phone, 
and had gotten on the phone to demand that Lindsay stop harassing his daughter. Could you imagine you're getting prank called and then the dad comes on, quit calling my daughter. You're like, she called me. Right. But Buddy wouldn't listen to Lindsay as she was trying to explain that she hadn't been the one that called in the first place. Oh, and he would totally just believe his little princess. That's right. He totally went off on her. Tara was also receiving harassing phone calls. One from a male caller using a voice disguiser. She went to the Johnson County Sheriff's Department and was directed to Safe Haven, where she filed an order for protection. The order was later dismissed, though, because there wasn't the right relationship between the two parties. So she couldn't get protection from this particular order of protection. Hey. Billy printed out pages and pages of messages and emails and kept them all in a binder to track the communications that were occurring to have proof of them. Lindsay took the Potters to court over the harassment, but the case was pretty much thrown out for lack of evidence. And I'm sure that it helped a little bit that Janelle had to be carried out of court one day by Jamie and Buddy because the stress of the ordeal had affected her so much. Oh, a little damsel in distress. Right. And the judge was like, okay, I've had enough. This is all childish. Please go get along or just stay away from each other. Yeah. By this time, Jamie had firmly aligned his allegiance with Janelle over Billy. He and Billy even had an altercation at work and had to be put on different shifts because Jamie didn't take too kindly to his cousin telling him that Janelle was making everything up and that she was cray cray and he needed to stay away. Yeah. Which is really sad too because they were close cousins. They were. It totally ruined their relationship. Wow. As the authorities became involved and threats escalated, Janelle pulls out the big guns. Janelle tells her family and Jamie that she has contacted her friend Chris, who uses the alias Cody, in the CIA for guidance. Chris has a big personality, and he is very supportive of Janelle because he knows her to be such a sweet girl. Through Janelle's emails, he reaches out to Janelle, Barbara, and Jamie about what they can do about this situation. He uses his skills to hack into Janelle's email And uses it because, let's face it, he can't use his own official CIA one. That wouldn't be very (laughs) spy-like. So this is how she can explain why it's all being sent from her email. Right. Remember, you have to live a little bit in the delusion with me. Yep, I'm there. Chris prefers emails because he has a phobia of phones because they can be traced. (laughs) An email can't be? Like, what? (laughs) No. You don't know what an IP address is? Don't question it too much. You have to live in the delusion, Christy. Okay. Chris is very supportive of Janelle through his emails, providing encouragement and telling her what a great person she is. He is also very protective and lends his services to doing reconnaissance for her so that she can feel protected from the threats that she has been receiving. So these are emails going to Janelle, telling her, don't worry, you know, I've got these girls under surveillance. I know what they're doing. I'm going to protect you. Right. Janelle introduces Chris to her family through his emails. And Barbara and Chris developed such a close relationship discussing ways to protect Janelle and get Buddy reinstated back into the CIA that she begins to call him son and he calls her mom. Barbara is enamored with Chris because he sympathizes with her about her difficulties with people, especially her daughter, Christy. And he always takes Barbara's side. She even trusts him enough to take his opinion about Jamie and that he might actually be a good guy and that she should try to be friendly with him. With Chris's stamp of approval, almost immediately, Barbara warms up to Jamie. Barbara starts inviting him over for dinner, and he becomes a, quote, good friend of the families. 
She doesn't ever fully admit that Jamie and Janelle are in a relationship, even though that's exactly what it was. He's a family friend that she invites over all the time. And that explains why he's at their house all the time. Because he's an ally. Right. All because Chris has told her, like, this is a good idea. Jamie's actually a really good guy. While Barbara is now friendly towards Jamie, Jamie still feels very intimidated by her and continues to do what he describes as walk on eggshells around her to gain her approval. Yeah, honestly, who wouldn't have to walk around on eggshells around her? Right. She'd go off at any time. Chris also corresponds with Jamie about the relationship he has with Janelle. He tells Jamie how to treat her nicely, how to take her out on dates and things like that. The big brother type of advice. He tells Jamie how appreciative he is that Jamie's around to protect Janelle and her family and how important it is that he does that. In one correspondence, he tells Jamie, quote, I can't wait for you and Buddy and us to do our jobs, referring to protecting Janelle. Chris reassured Jamie that he, as a member of the CIA, had Jamie's back. In other messages, he says, quote, I hope Janelle don't think about killing herself over all this. What? Mm-hmm. So these are messages that he's typing to Jamie. Just to show how dramatic and serious it actually is. Right. They need to take this threat very seriously. Chris also develops a relationship with Buddy indirectly through Barbara and Janelle's reports. Buddy learns that Chris is working on getting him reinstated back into the CIA and back into active duty. This is a dream of Buddy's, and he grabs onto it with both hands. Chris also understands Buddy's concerns about the problems that Janelle and his family are facing with all the threats and understands that something has to be done about it. He sends the message that while he is sad that he isn't able to deal with it directly, he trusts Buddy is capable of doing what needs to be done. Those around Janelle all seem very committed to keeping her safe, which is ironic because it was actually her supposed aggressors that were having the real problems. Shortly after Billie Jean and Billy's son Tyler was born, Barbara and Janelle had to be run off by a local woman at a gas station when they started waving their arms at Billie Jean and screaming at her about being a bad mother and calling her trash. Who does that to a new mom? A dirtbag. Uh-huh. She was on her way to Tyler's first doctor's checkup, and she was so visibly shaken by this attack that the woman bystander felt compelled that she had to intervene. It wasn't until she threatened to call the police that Barbara and Janelle fled away in their car. That's terrible. Mm -hmm. Janelle definitely wasn't the one that had to be protected. She's the one that you need protecting from. Mm -hmm. After the court case about Lindsay's allegations of harassment, on November 30th, 2011, all the involved parties returned to the small town, and there was yet another altercation and yelling match between Billy and Buddy outside of a convenience store where the Potters and Jamie had stopped to eat. Lindsay and Billie Jean happened to be in the store at the same time. It's a small town, so it's not a big surprise that they would run into each other. The two women left the store immediately, and a few minutes later, Billy shows up, and a public yelling match ensued. Jamie slunk away from this situation, and it just resulted in more animosity between the two sides. Later, Billy tried to reason with his cousin, showing him a two-inch thick folder of emails that he had collected from Janelle, that said hurtful things. Ones that wished his infant son dead. That's horrific. Mm -hmm. Does Jamie believe him? Not at all. Billy even admits to posting things about Janelle, but only in retaliation. He admits that the whole situation is going back and forth, but Jamie doesn't believe him. Jamie defended his girlfriend, 
After all, he was messaging with Chris, the CIA agent personally, and had all this intel about what these people were doing to his girlfriend. Oh. Jamie went straight to Janelle and told her about this whole meeting up with Billy. The whole situation only grew worse. The Potters started having family discussions about what needed to be done to protect Janelle from all of the lies that were being told. Jamie often joined in these conversations where Barbara would inform him and Buddy about everything that Chris had been telling her and the latest drama-filled news of the feud that was going on. She was adamant that something must be done to protect the family. They needed a protector now. This is just so wild how one little lie turns into another lie, turns into another lie, and this has just now gotten so out of hand. It's a whole bunch of delusions that are so intertwined. Yeah. So that's the history leading up to the murders. Can you guess who the victims are? Well, I'm assuming it's going to be one of the people who they're perceiving are attacking Janelle. It's hard to tell. There's just so much craziness going on. And who's going to be the one to pull the trigger? Jamie. Okay. No, actually, I don't know. On the evening of January 30th, 2012... Barbara called up Jamie and asked him to come over and fix the computer. This whole idea of him fixing the computer as an excuse is still going on. Oh my goodness. While at the Potter residence, Buddy came into the computer room when Barbara and Janelle were out of it and asked if Jamie would do him a favor. Buddy asked Jamie to, quote, take him down next to Billy's, let him out, and go down the road and come back and pick him up. Buddy did not specify when he was talking about. It was just a general request for a favor. When Jamie returned to his home that night, Janelle called him on his phone and told him that Buddy needed Jamie's help to do something. Jamie told Janelle that he wanted to work on his computer and he needed to hang up and use the phone line. So he didn't really want to talk to them. Jamie then received a text message from Janelle's cell phone that read, quote, I would not take your cell phone with you in the morning, love. Ooh. On January 31st, shortly before 6.30, Bradley Osborne, Tara's husband, arrived at Billy and Billie Jean's house to pick up Billy for work. It was a typical morning. When he arrived, Billy Ray, also known as Pa Bill, or Billy's father, who Billy and Billie Jean lived with, he had already left for work, and the bedroom light in Billy and Billie Jean's room was on. He waited for a few minutes and tried to call and text Billy, but the messages didn't go through because of the service. So he approached the side door that was always unlocked and went in to see if Billy was up. When he called out, he didn't get any response. He could hear the alarm clock going off and the baby whimpering, but after a few more minutes of Billy not appearing, he decided just to head to work. He didn't think anything was unusual. He figured they were just busy dealing with the baby and he didn't want to disturb them. Oh no. Later that morning, Billy still hadn't shown up for work, but again, nobody was too concerned. And I kind of got the impression that maybe this wasn't unusual for Billy. Or it was just a really laid back company and they know he has a brand new baby. Yeah, but nobody was overly concerned that he hadn't shown up. Okay. Around 10 a.m., Roy Stevens and his wife stopped by the house to pick up some mail. Roy had temporarily been staying there because of troubles in his marriage. He entered the house again through the open sliding door and called out. No one answered. And he thought this was really unusual because both Billy and Billy Jean's vehicles were home, so he knew they were there. He ventured through the house, and that is when he found Billy lying on his back in the bedroom. He had been shot at point-blank range in the face, and his throat was slit. <gasps> While his wife called 911, 
and told the dispatcher that there was no sense in doing CPR, Roy followed the sound he heard in the second bedroom. There he found Billie Jean cradling baby Tyler. She had been shot just behind her right ear. And I envision her turning her face hunched over her infant. Blood was everywhere. Tyler was quiet and still in his dead mother's cooling arms, but he was still breathing. <gasps> the infant had been cradled and protected by Billie Jean and was still alive. Trapped against his mother's body, he was completely exhausted from crying for hours after his parents had been shot. Ugh. At first, they didn't even know he was alive because he was so still. That gives me goosebumps. They had called her such a bad mom. And she protected him with her own life, even. Yep. Police investigating the scene found several weapons, but none matched the shell casings found there. They found a small amount of meth and drug paraphernalia on a piece of furniture in the second bedroom. This led police to originally think that this might have been a drug deal gone wrong. While Billy wasn't a known drug dealer per se, he had taken to selling some of his own prescription medication that he was using to control his addiction for extra cash. It was soon confirmed that while two friends had contacted him for a possible exchange the night before, Billy had canceled, saying that he was just too tired. Okay. He didn't actually get clean? He was trying to get clean, but it sounded like the drug that he was taking to control some of his addiction also gives you a little bit of a high. And so he was selling that on the side as well. Okay. Next, because the feud was so well known in the small town, police did their due diligence to follow up with the Potters as people of interest because they were known to have issues with Billy and Billie Jean. Yeah, they should be number one suspects. Mm -hmm. But they got a little bit sidetracked when they saw the drugs. Yeah, we all know this was not a drug deal gone wrong. No. And did they check on Lindsay and Tara right away? Yeah, and they were fine. During the interview at the Potters' home, Janelle talked about her ordeal with the couple and what they had done to her. Her parents cooperated her story. During their recounting, it became obvious that Janelle was not being truthful about her relationship with Jamie, and this led police in his direction. During their first interview with him, they didn't get much, but a week later on January 6th, they brought him in for questioning again and to take a polygraph test. Their spidey senses must have known that something was fishy about his story. During the interview, Jamie, sweating buckets, asked if the CIA was there. Oh. Tell me he does not believe that he got an order from the CIA to terminate these people. He did. No! Watching the police reaction to his absurd question about the CIA being involved in a small town murder, the light bulbs start going off for him. Jamie now recalls the time when Billy had tried to convince him that Janelle was lying, that he had told Jamie that he didn't believe that there was a Chris. He believed Janelle was pretending to be him. Once that memory surfaced, more kept on coming. He remembered another time that Janelle let it slip to Jamie that she was going to have to start calling Lindsay again. When Jamie asked Janelle about this comment, she got real defensive and wouldn't say anything else about it. Like a bombshell, Jamie came to the realization that the woman who he believed he was in love with had duped him. Oh, what a sickening feeling that would have been. Not only the betrayal of somebody you love, but just knowing that you had been... So naive in believing that, yes, a CIA agent was telling you that it was okay to murder people. Oh. Jamie confessed to the police what happened that night. In his version of events, things went down like this. He received a call from Buddy in the early morning hours of January 31st, 
When he missed picking up the call that had came from the Potter's residence, Janelle had sent Jamie a text message at 425 telling him that Buddy was trying to call him and instructed Jamie to call Buddy back. Jamie called Buddy at 426 and Buddy asked if Jamie could do that favor for him now. Jamie agreed to help Buddy and moments later Janelle sent Jamie a text message that said Daddy's leaving. Buddy arrived at Jamie's house while it was still dark outside. He got into Buddy's vehicle and they drove to the parking lot to the church near Billy's house. When they pulled in, Jamie asked Buddy how far down he was to drive, but Buddy said that Jamie might not have to go. Jamie and Buddy sat in the church parking lot and waited for Pa Bill to leave for work. Billy Ray Payne would later testify that before leaving for work, he had said good morning to Billy Jean, who was up warming up a bottle for baby Tyler. After seeing Pa Bill leave for work, Jamie and Buddy walked across the field towards Billy's house. Once there, they hid behind the shed, and Jamie told Buddy that if Billy was home and saw that it was them, that all heck was going to break loose. That's when Buddy handed Jamie a gun. He was shocked and told Buddy that he could not kill anybody. And Buddy responded that he just needed Jamie to stand by the door. So that's what Jamie did. He stood at the door while Buddy went down the hallway and entered the first bedroom. Jamie heard his cousin say what the heck and watched Billie Jean run out of the bedroom carrying the baby. He blocked her way at the door and she ran back down the hall toward the second bedroom. That's when he heard the first gunshot. When Buddy came out of the bedroom, Jamie pointed him in the direction of the second bedroom where Billie Jean had run to. As Buddy went into that room, Jamie went into the bedroom Buddy had just left. He saw Billy lying on the bed. At the sound of the second gunshot, Jamie ran out of the house and back across the field to Buddy's truck. He gave the gun back to Buddy when Buddy returned, and when Buddy dropped him off at the end of his driveway, he vomited. Then he walked across the road to his mother's trailer because he didn't want to be alone. Later, he told his mom about the text message that he had received from Chris that said, quote, the problem was over. Sounds like a plausible story. It does sound plausible. Jamie later implied when he was interviewed the next day that he believed Chris when he said he was a CIA agent and he was approving the actions taking place and he would take care of the rest. That's why he had denied any knowledge of the crimes and eventually asked if the CIA was in town. Jamie would later justify his belief in Chris by saying that he would receive emails from the man saying that he had been watching over him for his own protection and Chris would then tell him about the specifics of what he had done that day. He knew Buddy had connections to the CIA in his past, and so he believed the whole story that they had this CIA agent looking out for him. Yeah, that he was doing his Buddy a solid. Right. After confessing, the police then had Jamie call the Potter residence to see if they could record anything incriminating. Barbara answered the telephone and spoke with Jamie for a few minutes. She talked about Chris sending an email to her and telling her that Jamie had been arrested. So she's getting all of this information from Chris because nobody else would know. It's not like it's on TV or anything like that. Right. She asked Jamie if he had taken a lie detector test and whether he had passed it or not. Jamie lied and said that he had. Then Buddy spoke to Jamie. Jamie asked Buddy if he, quote, got rid of everything from Bill's. Buddy responded, "Uh uh-huh. Jamie then said, quote, okay, that makes me feel a lot better. To which Buddy replied, yeah. This wasn't a smoking gun, but it was enough along with Jamie's confession to get a search warrant and take Buddy in for questioning. 
But before you get the idea that Jamie has now turned into this nice guy, you should know that he goes on to recant that statement and make a new one saying that he was never at the crime scene at all, but was only told about the crime scene by Buddy. What? Mm -hmm. Jamie changes his story several times. Which often means you're a liar. Uh Uh-huh. During the search conducted in the Potter's house in the early morning hours of February 7th, police found several guns and knives. While the guns were capable of firing the ammo found at the scene, they couldn't match up any of the unique markings on the casings. Oh. Police also found three bags of shredded emails in the back of Buddy's truck. These emails would later painstakingly be put back together by a forensic specialist and prove the crazy amount of catfishing that was taking place. Oh, that would be painstaking, that Uh job. What this agent did was absolutely amazing. She put hours and hours and hours of work into completing the task. It was assumed that the family had started to wipe the computer of evidence and even changed posts on social media platforms. But Barbara had been printing off emails to show Buddy because he didn't use the computer. In one of these emails was the statement that if Buddy didn't kill Billy and Billy Jean, they were going to kill Janelle. The intel was confirmed by Chris, the supposed CIA agent. Some emails contained information about what was being done to get Buddy his CIA credentials. And others, many, many others, contained hateful things about the so-called mean girls and the surveillance of them. Oh. So there were reports on, yes, they're doing this today and they're doing this and they, they did this to Janelle. The Potters had gone to the trouble of shredding the evidence, but they just hadn't gotten around to dumping it before the police showed up. <laughs> Good, I'm glad. But it isn't the brightest move. <laughs> no, but they probably didn't think all those pages would get put back together. Like, if you think how thinly you can shred a piece of paper, it would seem almost impossible to straighten all that out. Yeah. And this agent put over 100 pages back together of these emails. She has a superpower. Like, honestly, how do you do that? Yeah. I don't know. It was incredible. During the search, Barbara tried to finish the job of destroying evidence right in front of the police. What? Yes. Police were collecting paper evidence and stacking them on a chair to be logged. Barbara went over and grabbed several pictures and started ripping them in half. What? Mm-hmm. When these pictures were put back together, they were pictures of Billie Jean, Tara, and Lindsay with obscenities vengefully written across all of them. It was just more damning evidence against the family. Yeah, it's showing bullying against them. Mm-hmm. When police interrogated Buddy, they had a hard time believing that a man in such poor health would be able to carry out the murders Jamie had described. He was known to be dependent on oxygen and had several health complications. And how mobile was he? He could walk and get around, but he wasn't running anywhere. Okay. And they had parked down at the church and then supposedly walked over. Right. And who parks at a church to go do a murder? (laughs) Just adds a little bit to it, right? Yeah, I would be too scared to park (laughs) at a church. That's extra damnation for you. Right? They should have bad juju from the start. Yeah. But the police just didn't believe that this old guy on disability with oxygen would be able to carry out this crime. While Buddy was able to go without oxygen or medication during his four-hour interview, it seemed like a far stretch that he would be able to overtake two young people in their prime. But if you catch them by surprise, you don't have to overtake them. Or it doesn't have to be a surprise if you're trying to save an infant either. Exactly. If he was shooting Billy first... 
Billie Jean is not going to try to fight him off. She's going to grab baby Tyler and try to run to safety. Exactly. That's what she did. And Jamie stopped her at the front door. During Buddy's interrogation, he was stoic and denied having anything to do with the murders. But he talked in detail about the confirmed threats to his family. And he became emotional when discussing protecting his daughter. Oh, boo-hoo, after you've just taken the parents of a little boy away. Mm Mm-hmm. He denies the police's attempt to blame Jamie, saying that Jamie would have done it because he was in love with his daughter. Buddy denies the relationship between them completely because he said that straight a while ago to protect his daughter. So he's still in complete denial about that relationship. Police cash in, though, on Buddy's idea of protection and start to empathize with him. It was only natural that he should want to protect his family now. And maybe the best way to protect them was to be the first one to break the news that he had been involved. And this actually works. Buddy makes a call to Barbara from the interrogation room. He tells his wife that he did it, some of it, because of what, quote, they tried to do to her and Janelle. He stated that he, quote, didn't want her to be afraid no more. Barbara's response, it's not stun silence. She immediately goes into telling him that he could not have committed the crimes because she saw him sitting there at home during the time of the murders. What a little weasel. She immediately clicks into a lying, cheating, manipulating little mode. Right. But he told Barbara again, quote, I love you. I did it to protect you. Barbara then forcefully instructed Buddy, quote, you are not guilty because you were here. You have to say that. You were here. I saw you. Before concluding the call, she again says, quote, don't worry, honey. You were right here. I saw you right here. Wow. She is so bold. She is. Barbara still does not accept Buddy's confession. She believes it was the result of Buddy's medical condition, explaining, quote, When they took him, they took no oxygen. They took no medication. They were interviewing him for hours. When his oxygen gets low, he says things that don't make sense or are incorrect. And is that true? When he doesn't have his oxygen? There was a doctor that did testify at trial to his competency to perform without his oxygen. And he said that while it may have made him a little bit sleepish, It shouldn't have made him delusional and confess to murder if he didn't do it. Yeah, I wouldn't think so. Right. Despite Barbara's theory, police do believe Buddy's confession. And again, the character of Chris comes into question because Buddy believes, too, that he was on an authorized mission. Police start trying to find this CIA agent. Of course, no such person exists. I know where she is. Yeah. They track down Christopher Chodden, an individual living in Delaware. This real-life Chris worked as a certified constable in Willington, Delaware, and had previously worked for the Delaware City Police Department. He looks exactly like pictures that Janelle had posted of Chris. But he's not CIA. No. Turns out the real Chris had attended high school with Janelle, whom he recalled as being very strange. He tells police they didn't really hang out with the same crowds, and that he had had no contact with Janelle since he graduated from high school in 2000. Police show him photos that Janelle has used to portray Chris, the CIA agent, and the real Chris is able to show them the originals that had been some of his profile pictures on Facebook at one time or another. Oh, Some of the pictures have been photoshopped to include people he didn't even know. 
This was the same tactic that Janelle had used to insert herself into several of the, quote, mean girls photos that they had taken exception to at the beginning of the feud. Wow. Good police work. Mm -hmm. And this poor Chris is like, I have no idea what you're talking about. His testimony at the trial is actually quite humorous. They're asking him, is this you in this picture? He's like, that's me, but I was not with those people. That's right. This did not take place. Through the investigation, it was revealed through a web of communications sent between Janelle and Jamie's cell phones, Janelle and Barbara's Facebook accounts, and Barbara, Janelle, and Jamie's email accounts that there had been some masterful catfishing going on. They traced the emails from Chris, Janelle, and Barbara all back to the same IP address. Through a linguistic specialist, it was determined using the cadence of language, subjects, spelling, and frequency of grammatical errors that the online messages and emails that came from multiple people that supported Janelle all were penned by the same person, Janelle. Oh, 100%. I believe that. Mm -hmm. And how dumb of her, too. She's going to pick some guy from her high school that she can be connected to and who's in law enforcement and is going to be totally credible in his statements. Right. What police also found out were all of Chris's emails were also penned by Janelle. She had been the one behind it all. She orchestrated the feud to play the victim to get attention. She had penned messages to her mom for her mom to come across, pressing all the right buttons to get her mom riled up. Barbara would then rile Buddy up, and Janelle did it all using the exact same computer that her mom would then get those messages on. She had them literally eating out of her hands. Mm -hmm. To show just how entrenched her parents were in the delusion, Please find multiple messages that are written from Barbara's email to Chris. In them, she writes things like, quote, Bud is wondering when he would be contacted to meet up and pick up his ID you spoke of some time ago. Just for your information, he is home every day, as I am home. He can come alone because Janelle can be with me. He is actually wondering if there is an ID or not. Janelle, as Chris responded, quote, Yes, I saw the ID. Have they not given it to him yet? That makes me so mad. They said they would do it, and they have not called him. I even told my boss about it, and he said yes, and that he would get Tommy to talk to him. I don't understand them. I will say something for Buddy, because he does have it, and I have seen it. It looks just like ours. I will be talking to someone I work with about giving him his card. I don't know why they would be waffling. I don't get this, but I'll talk to my boss. Barbara then responded, quote, thanks for bugging them anyway, Chris. But if they have decided not to give the ID to Bud, we would have to understand. He would really like to be involved in a lot of things, especially Christy, cuffing her when the time comes, etc. Cuffing her? Yeah. His daughter. His daughter. And this is what her mother is writing. Right. Oh, nasty, nasty. It is. Through these emails, it is clear that Barbara is out for vengeance against her own daughter and worse against others. She writes Bud was mad and that she was, quote, 100% behind whatever happens. You guys should meet when you are ready. And that Bud might have his ID by then and might be able to use the CIA guns, etc. for his protection and to get the job done. So she fully was aware of what was going to happen. Absolutely. She directs the course of action by saying, quote, They all need to go, and the ones left need to be given a big scare as they watch and wonder, am I next? She affirms that Bud knows the area well, and that Bud said he would help, 
because he is fed up and ready. Janella's Chris writes back that the Mean Girls were, quote, scared of him and that he wanted to kill them all now. It's hard to believe that someone operating at a fourth grade level is capable of this kind of manipulation that is so tailored to each person's weaknesses. Yeah. Barbara is pulled perfectly into the drama. She writes a message to Chris stating her support of what they all felt needed to be done. Quote, as long as you are doing the right thing for mankind, then you will not be judged badly. If it is like what Buddy did, you are helping others get rid of the bad. Referring to Buddy's time with the CIA previously. She's delusional. Well, clearly she believes firmly in all of the heroic stories that Buddy had told her before. And that Chris is this real guy. And I'm sorry, but anything that you actually have to do in the CIA or in the military is nothing even close to murdering a young mother and father. No. So if you're the prosecutor of this case, who's responsible? Who goes to jail? I'm throwing all four of them in there, honestly. But Janelle is the mastermind. Without her, none of these murders would have happened. So I feel like even if she didn't pull the trigger, she's the most to blame. They all are charged with murder, eventually. Good. Jamie Lynn Curd was arrested and charged with the murders, but took a plea deal. For testifying against the others, he received a sentence of 25 years with the eligibility for parole. His first parole hearing was in 2015. I believe he was granted parole during his second parole hearing at the end of 2019. Oh, he's out. He is now out. Marvin Buddy Potter was convicted of the murders in October 2013 and sentenced to two life sentences. (gasps) He did not testify at his own trial, but would later share his version of events in a post-conviction hearing about shooting Billy accidentally after Billy pulled a knife. He admitted that he then purposely slit his throat in his rage over what he believed Billy had done to his daughter. Buddy still denies killing Billy Jean. In his version of events, he said, About 10 to 12 seconds after my gun went off, I heard another shot. I was coming out of the room, I got right to the door, and Curd went flying past me like a bolt of lightning. Buddy claims that Jamie threw him under the bus to save himself a life sentence. Oh man. And so now Bud has two life sentences, no chance of parole. That's right. A month before Buddy's sentencing, both Barbara and Janelle were arrested for the murders. Mother and daughter were tried together in 2015. 35-year-old Janelle's defense was that she was not smart enough to make up all this and that she was not responsible for her father's overprotective actions. Hogwash. Yep. 64-year-old Barbara's defense was that she knew nothing. She denied any knowledge of any emails. Remember, she was sitting at home watching her husband just being at home. Right. Both arguments were disproven, over 2,700 pages of messages that had been collected during the investigation. Wow. After seven days of testimony, where neither woman testified on their own behalf, the jury found both Janelle and Barbara guilty of first-degree murder, and they were both sentenced to life in prison in July 2015. In 2021, both Janelle and Barbara appealed and requested new trials. Janelle was denied, but Barbara's request was granted. No way. Mm -hmm. It was granted because of a conflict of interest with her lawyer. He was the same one that represented Buddy, and his daughter, acting as power of attorney for the family's estate, had embezzled money from the sale of their house. The lawyer's daughter? The lawyer's daughter embezzled their money 
Oh, man. If Barbara goes free, it's that daughter's fault. Mm-hmm. It does seem so wrong to embezzle their money, but doesn't seem like poetic justice that they get something taken away from them. <laughs> Not if it lets Barbara go free. On November 10th of 2021, after being granted a new trial, Barbara, at the age of 71, waived the right and pleaded guilty to facilitating the murders. Her lawyer tried to spin it as her concern for the emotional toil that a new trial would bring. Conveniently, the new plea carries with it the opportunity for parole. Sneaky. I was just thinking, oh, it only took her 71 years to finally be accountable for your actions, but she had an ulterior motive. I believe she did. Because she just watched Jamie get out after only serving five years because he took a plea. And so all of a sudden she's like, oh, no, I don't want a new trial now. I think I'll take a plea. Oh, that's dirty. Mm -hmm. Both Barbara and Janelle are incarcerated in the Deborah K. Johnson Rehabilitation Center. And Buddy is at the Turney Center Industrial Complex and only serving out his sentences. And one last secret turn to reveal before we leave this wild ride. It was proven that Buddy never worked for the CIA, and it was rumored that he was charged in 2004 at the age of 53 with stolen valor because the many medals he claimed to have earned during his service were actually that of another brave Marine, Raymond Clausen. (gasps) I'm not surprised, really. It seems to fit in perfectly with his family. Were they so delusional that they believed their lies? Yes. Like, that's outrageous. Even though Barbara knew these weren't his medals, Tolly was like, yeah, he's CIA. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. These are dangerous type of people. Absolutely. They have dangerous delusions and they're willing to follow them. This rumored charge came at the same time that the family left the state of Pennsylvania and moved to Tennessee. So that would have been a good excuse to move to a new state. Yeah. And while I couldn't find any official documentation myself to validate it, I think it's very interesting given the delusion that he created led to other delusions that then led to murder. This was a whole big snowball of bad decisions and lies. Mm -hmm. And that is the case of the manipulative, all-in-the-family type delusion that led to murder. The dirtbags, Jamie Curd, and Marvin, Barbara, and Janelle Potter. Whoa. That was a wild case, Melissa. Hopefully it wasn't too hard to follow. There were a lot of players and a lot of (laughs) false drama going on. Yeah, you had my brain firing (laughs) the whole time. You cannot passively listen to this one. But what a good job you did telling it. I just find it so interesting that her parents actually believed her, that she was conversing with this CIA agent that they didn't know. Anybody that Janelle interacted with, they had to vet. Well, Barbara believed that her husband was a CIA agent, even though she knew he wasn't. Right, Janelle knew that she just had to say he was a CIA agent. And then instantly, they were so entrenched in their own delusions about Buddy's past that they instantly believed this guy's got to be for real. Well, they obviously put like CIA agents on a really high pedestal. Right. Well, after hearing all of that, I'm not sure who pulled which trigger, but absolutely all of them are guilty. Of that horrific murder. And I still stand with my original statement that Christy knew what she was talking about. Christy's always know what they're talking about. (laughs) We try our best. (laughs) And she'll definitely know what she's talking about next week when she brings us another case. So I hope you'll join us again. Until then. See ya. Bye.
All right, Melissa, I'm super excited to hear what you have to tell me. Oh, I thought you were going to say you're super excited to go out for dinner after. Let's oh. get this case done so we can eat. <laughs> well, I am excited about that, too. <laughs> go, Christy. I was like, oh, no, don't be a dirtbag. Don't be a dirtbag. I believe Christy. <laughs> the family's crazy. Except for Christy. Christy's are great. <laughs> I'm so glad she's not a dirtbag. I'm loving this already. <laughs> You're painting a good picture because, of the characters. Because Christy's in it. That's why you love it. <laughs> no, it's actually kind of weird to oh, hear, your name. hear your name. Yeah. Like a preschooler pulling a tantrum, she went she ran away from home. Because <laughs> <laughs> she's a preschooler. What a disgusting human being. Isn't that so rude? Rude is not <laughs> rude is like a baby word. For that I rude. Also, oh, Chris is a real person. Yeah. Oh, I thought he was made up too. Well, he is made up. What? You have to stay in the delusion, Christy. <laughs> it's hard to follow who's real and who's not in this case. Okay. Oh, it's going to be Buddy. I can't tell you just yet. How's it feel? <laughs> Gotta stop doing that. Okay. So many bills. You got that all? Yep. When he I called it, though. Who was going to do it? Actually, no, you didn't. But... Oh, it's not Jamie? No. We're good. Okay. Well, I don't know for sure. Okay. Hold on. Okay. It gets crazier. Ooh. Gets so much crazier. Yeah. And they believed that the CIA was this grandiose thing. Well, it is kind of grand if you're actually in the CIA. <laughs> Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know? And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.